friends, welcome to Halfway There. This is a special bonus episode of Halfway There. Today, our guest is author, and she's also a fellow podcaster and an advocate. We're going to talk about one of those areas where she's an advocate, Mary DeMuth. Mary, welcome back to Halfway There. So great to be back and really nice to see you again. And I messed it up because I saw your post today. It's DeMuth, not DeMuth. Yeah, DeMuth. DeMuth. All right. I'll just screw it up. I'm, cat in there meowing. I'm, I'm from Iowa. We can't pronounce anything. Yeah, you do whatever you want. All right, good enough. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to see you again and to have a conversation. You and I talked last uh, last fall, and that was great. Shared your story. So, friends, if you want to hear more of Mary's story, you can go back and listen to that. Um, but we're going to talk about your new book, which is called We Too. And the subtitle is not on the page that I'm looking at. Where'd it go? It's how the church can respond <laughs> redemptively to the sexual abuse crisis. Perfect. I knew it was just a little longer than I would remember. But um, yes, <laughs> yeah, I love that because you're playing on this idea of uh, the the Me Too movement, and but incorporating the church and asking us to have a different and better response than uh, sometimes has been the case. So what I would like to do, um, I have a lot of questions and you can just feel free to send us in whatever direction you want. Um, but I would love to, first of all, just define the problem. Cause I think we see, we hear news stories, we see a lot of things going on, but it's hard to take all that in and just put it into one succinct capsule. So can you just explain the problem of what's happening right now? Well, the problem has been happening for millennia mm-hmm. and the issue is that it's finally in the light. Um, so sexual abuse has been happening within the church and without the church, uh, for centuries and, um, because of the Me Too movement, it's finally having a spotlight on it. And we've seen in the past year, after um, that all started, we've seen a lot of Protestant pastors, um, or several, uh, kind of fall, so to speak. And so there's two different problems. There's the problem of um, what happens when sexual abuse occurs within a ministry or a church. The second problem is... What do sexual abuse survivors do when they walk into a church and how does the church respond to them, whether it happened in the church or not? And so those are two of the issues that I'm tackling in We Too. Um, obviously, in an institutional sense, uh, we need to do better at protecting our children and we need to not worry so much about protecting our reputation when it happens within our camp. Um, but in a pastoral sense, how do we love those who are traumatized and how do we um, welcome them. One of the things uh, that I've said in We Too is that we heal better together. The church is supposed to be the place for the wounded and the broken, and we actually don't heal in isolation. We don't heal alone. I've tried that. It doesn't work, and it just makes me bitter and um, introspective and suicidal. So <laughs> right. it's better if we have people in our lives, and so therefore, how can the church become that kind of redemptive community that it's meant to be? Right, and I love that call because we are we are the kingdom of God on earth to go out and kind of spread that. So if we're not doing that, then we're not living up to what God's called us to. Um, exactly. You also said that this has been a problem that's going, been going on forever. One of my favorite lines, um, I didn't make a meme out of this because I thought, well, it doesn't, it's not clear enough, but or it doesn't give the whole picture, but it says, if you want to see everything that hell can vomit our way, read the Bible. <laughs> right. Yes. I just love that you wrote because 
really, when you start to look at scripture, sexual abuse is all over the place. And I was kind of astounded by that. Um, I was too. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I have divided the book into three parts, the past, the present, the future. And so the past is looking at you know, the history of humanity, the history of the church, but also the history in the Bible. And as I started to piece through it, I, I was astounded at how many narratives there were in the word of God. And, and then doubly astounded that no one's ever talked about it or very few. <laughs> right. It's like, wait, why haven't we talked about this? And I think maybe we have this kind of problem in thinking that if it's written down, then it's discreet that it's prescriptive rather than descriptive. Yep. So we think, well, since rape is mentioned, then maybe they, you know, we're uncomfortable with that. And maybe it means that the, it's saying we should do that, but no, it is just describing it. And as you look at the rape narratives throughout scripture, it, it doesn't go well afterwards. The aftermath right. of um, that kind of violation is insidious, particularly on the nation of Israel and their history. And so um, if you were looking at it that way, you would say, wow, this is really bad. I mean, besides the fact that it's forbidden in scripture to rape right. people, but, um, but, you know, it's just there, it's like a, an amazing cautionary tale that is at our disposal as Christians, but we just don't, we don't like to talk about those things. So we just don't read those yeah. or we gloss over them or we just pretend they don't exist. Right. Well, and I think we should acknowledge up front, it's uncomfortable, right? Yeah, like it's, sure. it's not fun to talk about that. I've, I've been, I've had to take breaks as I'm reading. I'm going, okay, I got to take just a minute because this is just, it's heavy and it's hard yeah. and that's okay. It's okay for that to be the case, but doesn't mean we can ignore it. So, yes, scripture is there to let us know what happens when when these things go go awry, right? When rape happens, things like that. Um, you talked pretty eloquently about the the story of the the woman. We don't have to go too deep into that, but the woman who gets the concubine gets thrown out by her husband to the to the I forget this is in judges right this mm -hmm. and the people abuse her and then just leave her and she crawls back to the doorstep and dies right and he just steps over like yeah wow and we I've never heard that preached right what <laughs> why not and it's a uh, it's there and it's there for a reason okay so that's the problem so the the problem is definitely uh here in not just the Catholic Church, I, I've heard this from some people too, because in the 90s and 2000s, right, the Catholic Church scandal hit and was a big deal. But you're like you were saying just now, there were some, this is happening in Protestant churches as well, and we don't handle it better necessarily. No, and I think we were super proud when we we were like shaking right. our fingers like oh yeah the catholic church look what how bad that is and we thought it doesn't happen in our churches and we were wrong we were actually better at covering it up because it didn't come to light until just last year so <laughs> um wow. you know that's kind of telling in and of itself another thing that's interesting and difficult is because the Catholic Church has a hierarchical structure, it's both good and bad. Bad in that they have this systemic way of quelching things, right? But good in the sense of they have records of this unless they've, you know, disposed of them. Right. The Protestant Church doesn't usually, most are independent from one another and they're not talking to each other. And so it's hard to see if there's been a predator that has gone from one congregation to another even within a denomination. And so therefore the, the, 
the um, problem is actually more widespread because predators have been like, hey, <laughs> I can, you know, I'll get kicked out of this church and I probably won't get prosecuted. And that's typically how it goes. And so I'll quietly leave and go on to another one and they'll never know. And they'll do a background check and there will be no, um, nothing there because I have, was not prosecuted. So I'll just keep going. And so the, the problem is huge. Right. Right. And then it just gets worse, right? You end up with a trail of victims that, um, that are just a ton of hurting people. So, um, you, you detail so many stories of that, that case because nobody stood up. Nobody actually took that step that the abuse could continue. Right. And the, just the egregiousness of that, that we could have, you know, people could have stopped it if they had just opened their mouths and said, not on my watch. And so few people were brave enough to do that. And therefore people that were abused 10, 20, you know, 15 years later could have been pre- preserved or helped or never abused because, but someone didn't stand up. Right. I was astounded. It's not in a church, but the Jerry Sandusky case, right? Somebody said, yeah. This was reported in 1976. You didn't know that? No, you didn't do anything? And the Nasser case as well. Like he had been reported consistently over the years in the 90s. And he had hundreds of victims afterwards. Uh, My friend, uh, Rachel Den Hollander, has said something to the effect of it's probably thousands. And Mm. because he was practicing every day from the 80s on. So you can just imagine the number of girls that he had contact with every single day day for all of those years. Wow. It makes me sick. Well, it does. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, that's, I think that's the, it's the only real, I guess anger is, is also appropriate emotion, but it's, it's like the first emotion. It's just, oh my gosh, it's so hard to even think about that. Okay. Let's identify some solutions. Cause you talk about that a lot, how maybe we should handle these kinds of things. And then I know there's a bunch of obstacles to that. So then let's talk about the obstacles. Okay. So what are, um, how should churches deal redemptively with sexual abuse situations? Well, um, whether it happens within or without the church, if someone that is a minor comes with an outcry, they are required by law to report that to the governing authorities. So, and I would argue that any Christ follower is obligated to be a mandatory Mm. reporter. If you Mm. hear of a minor being hurt, It is your job and your duty as a Christ follower to turn them in and let the authorities do the investigation. It's not up to you to try to figure it out or do your own investigation, but just turn it over. They are skilled at that. So that's the very first thing that that I would say. I would say for churches as a whole that they would want to have policies and procedures in place and child protection policies that are very clear that are not made 20 years ago, but are updated um, and that are uh, that take in consideration what's happened lately, and that means um, what do we do if someone accuses one of our staff members of sexual misconduct? Well, instead of just reacting to it with emotion, there should be a step-by-step process created by the church mm. um, of okay, this. Therefore, emotions can't get in the way. It's like this is our first step, second, third, fourth. Um, And then I would say to have a list of resources for those who are hurting. Um, Some of the pushback I've gotten on this book has been from pastors or pastor's wives. They're saying, well, my pastor's, my husband's overwhelmed or the pastor's overwhelmed. Can't do all things to all people. 
I totally get that. I'm a, I have been a church planter. I understand. Mm -hmm. But what I'm simply saying is I don't want you to be everything to everybody, but if there's a legitimate cry for help, um, and if it's a crime, you must report it. And if you feel like you cannot carry the weight of the trauma of that, you can always offer to say, I will walk alongside your family. I will pray with you. Here is a list of trauma-informed counselors that I trust that I've curated or the counseling center has curated, or we've got counselors on staff, or here's some Stephen ministers, or here's some trauma-informed people I think would be really helpful just to have that foresight to be able to Mm -hmm. send somebody to a place that you know and you trust will help them through the trauma that they're going to be enduring. Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say is take the appropriate amount of responsibility, right? So what that might mean, what, well, it definitely means reporting anything that you hear. It definitely means having a plan and understanding that this may happen and it does happen. And so when it comes to you, you should be ready or how you're going to handle it, whether it's somebody who's on staff or somebody who's in your church mm-hmm. or somebody who is just a victim in your church and it didn't happen, it's not related, um, which is super important. But then also don't take the responsibility to do the investigation or to do like try to keep it quiet. And you talk about that a lot because I think that's what happened mm-hmm. uh, or happens so many times. We don't want press, right? We don't want press about that happening at our church, you know, um, which is understandable in a way, but not okay. So what do victims actually need though? Because you go, you go into this a lot about what steps that you can take. So particularly with being believed, that's, a, that's probably a first, a first step, right? Yeah. So on the macro level, I would say that, that one of the most powerful things you can say to someone is just the three words, I believe you. And to remember that um, those false accusations are so rare And if it's made by a child, it's even rarer, but less than 5%. And if it's a false accusation and it goes to investigators, those numbers even decline at that point because they are pretty, you know, they're able to kind of discern what's a false accusation and what's not. Um, So err on the side of belief. Uh, People who who have survived trauma like this, they want to be listened to and empathized with. They typically don't want spiritual band-aids, um, mm. uh, even scripture cliches. Uh, you know, well, that was so long ago. The old is gone. The new has come. You know, God's going to make something beautiful out of this, all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, Which may know, be true, but not the time, right? <laughs> not the time. Yeah. And so I, you know, we don't need to throw Romans eight twenty eight at everybody or Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Um, first of all, those are taken out of context and there's the <laughs> theology hat I'll put on. But second of all, um, it's not helpful. And that's not to say Jesus doesn't heal. It's not to say we shouldn't bring him into the middle of it because we should, but that the, it's a misunderstanding of the long-term effects of trauma on anyone. And this is for anybody. This isn't just Mm. sexual abuse victims. There are trauma people in the church, people who have been traumatized. And then if you look at the worldwide church, there's extreme trauma there. Diane Langberg, Dr. Diane Langberg said, trauma is the mission field of our time. And I believe that's why I wrote this book is to help Mm. people understand that it's not just, well, if you could just believe enough, or if you could just say the right prayer or have the right person put their hand on your shoulder and pray for you, then you will be set free and we don't have to deal with you anymore. Um, This is about love. 
this is what long-term love looks like. My husband has long-term hesed love, that Old Testament, you know, rich, um, I can't say it correctly in the Hebrew, it's like hesed. Yeah, yeah, you got to get um, that, you got to clear your throat a little bit. (laughs) But but my husband has practiced that these, you know, almost 30 years of marriage is that long-term, long-suffering of loving someone who has been traumatized. And I love him all the more for it. And he's a picture of how the church should be. Not this manufacturing thing where we're just going to pull people in and pull them out and get our numbers in. It's about human beings who have issues. 100% of us have them. And we're walking alongside. This is a discipleship issue. Mm -hmm. And so Mm. if if your church loves to disciple people, there must be an element and component to if you've had trauma in your story, whether it's last year or last week or 20 years ago, here are some things that we can do to walk people through that. And that may mean pointing them to trauma-informed therapists and uh, EMDR therapy and all those kinds of things. But it also can simply mean walking alongside and, and listening and crying alongside. I, I, just, I think one of the best things that you can do is just do what Romans 12 says, weep with those who weep. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So I have so many thoughts on that. One is um, what you're describing is it, it just matters how we define discipleship, right? It matters how we define what the goal of spiritual maturity is. And as long as our churches are concerned with giving people knowledge and tasks to do, mm-hmm. knowing and doing. Hello, American church. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's so wrong. Um, then that's all they're going to do. And we're going to treat things like uh, thing, things like sexual abuse in our midst as something that needs to go away because it, it hinders what we're trying to do here. But if we see our, our spiritual maturity as our job is to love, uh, then that's a different kind of thing. It, it requires a different kind of action. I'm just more and more convinced that that distinction is exactly one of the problems in the, in the church. And here's a great example of it. Okay. Here's an honest question because, um, I wrestle with this, and so hopefully I don't uh, put myself in some category of, of of people who want to marginalize something. But I hear you that that um, that there's a a low number of false accusations, percentage wise. Uh, but we also live in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, and so I was trying to figure out like how do you wrestle with that? How do you do both? And I'm not even sure what the answer to that is. Yeah, I'll give you a, a link to this, um, but uh, Boz Chavijan, who's the president of netgrace.org, wrote an excellent piece on that. He is a lawyer, and so what he talks about in that piece is that, yes, in our American system, uh, someone is innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, but there's also wisdom to be exercised. Um, a lot of times, people plea out. And so I I actually went to a courtroom about a month ago and the person pled down to a misdemeanor and got 30 days in jail for a very egregious sexual crime. And so um, he, in the eyes of the law, is quote unquote innocent of of the deeper level of um, crime that he committed, right. but he still committed that crime. And so we still have to, as bo- as the body of Christ and as shepherds who are um, tasked with protecting our sheep, we have to exercise our discernment. And if someone has been harming others, 
And even though they have not yet been convicted by a court of law, if we have this, you know, trail of people behind them, then we need to err on the side of the weak, which is where Jesus would have us err. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So that's a great answer. And I think it highlights that there is a difference sometimes between the technical legal aspect of it and the, the social aspect of, of it. Right. So, um, or the, the person, the human aspect of it. So we have to, we have to protect it. I love the way that you said that. I think this, that's what this whole issue comes down to, doesn't it? Like we, are we going to protect the weak? Is that what God has called us to? Um, you see throughout the whole Old Testament, you yeah. just see him talking about widows and orphans and in this kind of, you know, triad or quadrant, I think it's a quadrangle of, 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 of need. And you've got all of these, you know, the marginalized, the, the outsider, the outcast, all of those people, God says, if you treat them poorly, I will see you and I will hunt you right. down. So we, it didn't change in the New Testament because then Jesus demonstrated yeah. the very heart of God of loving justice and loving mercy at the same time. He can, he could have both working at, at the same time, grace and truth held hands. He could mm. tell the truth and also love the truth and love people who needed him. And so I think you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Yeah, absolutely. Which is important. And uh, sometimes a hard, it's, it's hard to, for us to hold those together in tension, but we, we have to, we have to strive to do better. I love that. Okay. So victims need to be believed and they need to be taken care of. Um, so here's another question uh, that I think goes kind of right at the heart of, of, of how we're trying, how sometimes the church tries to handle it. We want to offer grace and forgiveness to the abusers, right? And sometimes a little too early. You talk about this a lot. So uh, what is, what should that look like? How do we apply the gospel there? We have to remember that um, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. And that's a pretty weighty thing to say. Yeah. So justice is very important to the heart of God. And therefore, um, I think what has happened in, in the, the Protestant church has been, especially if the person who committed the, the crime, and this is a crime um, in most cases, right. <laughs> uh we err on the side of belief of the powerful one and we marginalize the one who uh, is, you know, perceived to be weaker than, and this kind of follows a pretty typical pattern. Um, if you've seen it over in the news, you see someone making an outcry. They're like a lone ranger daring to do it. Everyone says, you know, they, they've already tried to do it in other ways, like go to the elder board, all that kind of stuff. And they have to go to the press because no one will believe them. So they finally go, and the, the um, hierarchy says Satan is trying to destroy our church through this person, and they equate them with Satan. Yeah, they, they pretend like they're being persecuted. Yes, that's the persecution complex. And then because that brave person stood up, five more people come, seven more people, 12 more people, 15 more people. And the um, governing body has to kind of look at it again. And then they realize, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this bad thing has happened. And then the person is dismissed. And then they have to offer a bunch of apologies. But the problem is, is that those who spoke up, who blew the whistle, are are hurt for a really long time. I'm friends with a lot of those kinds of folks and it's just very, very painful. And they're actually speaking up because they love the church. And then to have the mm. church retaliate people I know have received like Snapchat messages and Twitter things and emails about how they're satanic and how they're ruining the church. And, um, 
I kind of hope some of those people will eat their words because sadly the person that stood up was right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. I I want I meant to start with this but I forgot. Um because one of the one of the things you say very early on in the book is that you love the church, right? That that you're not we're not saying these things and you're not writing these things because you hate the church or because you're mad, but because you love the church and because we need uh, you, you want to see her deal appropriately and rightly and, and with truth and justice, um, not not to just tear her down. I love the church. And um, a lot of the lion's share of my healing has come from people in the church who dare to love me and listen to me and pray for me and cry with me. I would not be standing here today giving this interview if it wasn't for the church. Mm. So I know she can do great. And I've experienced the best of her. But I've also seen the underbelly of kind of this uh, kind of a crisis of leadership in the American Protestant church where bigger is better. And we've become like this big conglomeration of machines and uh, people are getting spit up, (laughs) you know, chewed up and spit out in this uh, evangelical machine. And just because I say that doesn't mean that I hate the church. It means that I absolutely adore the church, the worldwide body of Christ, not just the American church. Mm -hmm. People who love Jesus all over the world, and I want to see this book get into the hands of people on the other side of the oceans, because mm. this is a an epidemic in other places far more than it is here. Um, when wow. I spoke in South Africa, I would say that the the numbers there, the percentages are much higher. More like seventy percent of people have been sexually abused, wow. and it was it was traumatic and hard. We need a redemptive voice. If it's not the church, we're going to go other places. We should be the place. We should be the hospital. We should be the place that welcomes people who are broken and hurting. Amen. Amen. Simple to me. (laughs) Well, it is. Well, it's the kingdom of God come, right? It's it's the when Jesus was asked by the by John's disciples, "Are you the one that we should look for?" What does he say? He says, "Well, look at what's happening. the The blind see, the lame walk, the you know, the good news is preached to the poor." That's the literal definition of the gospel according to Jesus. So I think he gets to say, right? He gets to define that. What the kingdom is, right? He knows better. So yeah, this is is an area, so sexual abuse is where we have to to be able to deal with it uh, and with people well. Yeah, yeah, we look at Jesus in the New Testament, and I just love reading about him. People are following him around. They will not let him sleep. Right. They will not let him eat. His his uh, family was like, you're crazy. They're not even letting you eat. And they marginalized him. And he's like, I got to do this. I've come to the lost, you know, of Israel. Yeah. I've got to love these people, these people who need a physician. I'm here for them. And they followed him. There was this irresistibility about Jesus that I love. And I'm so sad that sometimes the church doesn't represent the irresistibility of Jesus. We've got all sorts of structures in place that don't feel like irresistibility to me. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about some of those because I wanted to talk about some obstacles. So one of those obstacles is trying to protect our reputation or protect the church. And that is a hard one. So... (laughs) Well, what do we do about that? What, what's Just tell us what the problem is and, and why that's faulty. Well, um, in the book, I talk about Church A and Church B. Church A is the one that wants to hold its reputation, and they have an allegation of abuse, and they cover it up. And eventually it comes out, and uh, the church is devastated by it. Church B, however, um, 
I actually heard a story of Church B recently of in Houston of a pastor who found out that um, there was a youth pastor that had harmed a girl. And he was away and he flew home. And immediately he turned the guy in to the authorities. And then he called a press conference. Mm. And he told the whole, all the press, hey, this happened on our watch. We're deeply grieved. This is terrible. We're so sad. Of course, he had a church meeting. Yes, this happened on our watch. We were grieved. We're sad. We sent him to the, you know, sent him to jail. Uh, and but and then they offered full-time, lifetime counseling to the girl, whatever kind of counseling she wanted. Wow. She, this was years ago in like 2004, 2005, the church doing a really redemptive work. She ended up marrying a pastor, which is an amazing story of mm. redemption. Like you're abused by a pastor and then you end up, you know, getting healed enough to be able to go back into that field of ministry is pretty creative and amazing. And, and isn't God good? So I think what's wrong is we've got this wrong idea in our head that if that somehow we have to protect the church. This is Jesus's church. He's well capable of protecting the reputation of the church. It's not our job. And we should err on the side of telling the truth and not lying. I mean, when you cover up, mm. that's, that's a lie. And that's the darkness. And that's how the evil one has gotten away with the scourge of sexual abuse for millennia because it's so dark. No one wants to shed light on it. And to shed light on it is to tell the truth and to be part of the gospel narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So I think that's what a great example. Um, man, it takes a lot of courage to do that though, doesn't it? Yes, so much. And I think that's where we get back to the point of the the gist of the gospel is not that we are awesome and we're, when we're so capable of living this Christian life. It's that actually we're really broken, mm. we're human, and we need Jesus. It's his strength married to our weakness. And so when a pastor is going through something like this, or a church leader or a missions leader or whatever, that's where they have to get on their knees and say, I can't do this, Lord. It's too mm. hard. It's too scary. I fear my whole organization is going to fall apart. But I entrust my reputation and this church's reputation to you, and I want to follow you. And I can't do it on my own strength. I'm going to need yours. Wow. Amen. I love that. Okay. Um, so I grabbed some questions from my audience. I know you saw those. I, I, yes, I tagged you there. Now. <laughs> Are you? I'm going to ask a few of these, not all of them, but uh, a few of them, because some of them were, were really good. Yeah. And uh, I think I, I like to do that because I think people have questions about this, right? Yeah. They have questions that, that they don't get to talk about or they don't get to ask, particularly somebody with your expertise. So um, I want to do that. So we've already talked about like what we can do to protect victims is there, is there a, um, or, well, we need to believe them. Is there anything else you'd add to that? Um, yeah, knowing good resources. And I have a, mm. a link on my page. We took, we two.org forward slash resources. And there's hundreds of vetted resources there. Cool. So, um, that can be super helpful. And of course, tangible things like sending a card or providing a meal for a family in crisis that just found out that this happened, um, financial help. Mm. I mean, there's all sorts of really tangible things we can do. Right. But then you have to know that that's happening, right? I mean, sometimes what happens is is something happens and then people want it to be quiet, whether like maybe the victim wants it to be quiet and then that's right. But that's isolating. And so how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, and that's where if you're in, in close contact with someone 
like that. Um, that's where you, of course, you respect their boundaries, but you stay. You don't let that push you mm. away from them and because they will eventually come back and need help and need love and need affection and need kindness and need prayer. And so instead of just kind of dismissing the person like, well, they're pushing back, so I don't, I'm not going to help. Just always stay on the periphery so that you can be that agent of healing and part of that narrative for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you talk about this in the book as well. Somebody asked, um, you know, there's a stat that says one in four males or one in six men as well. Uh, I don't know. I've seen seen different ones, but yeah. men are not um, rem- as removed from this as we'd like to think, right? It's mm-hmm. men are also abused. So how do how do we encourage men to talk about sexual abuse if they've been abused? Yeah, it's super important that they do, and it's destructive if they don't to mm. their hearts and to their um, to their patterns. And I often say that um, you know an untold story never heals. And what happens mm. is, if it's untold, we think that we're really capable of pushing it down, and we can do that. But it will come out in our actions in things that we are upset about, like. It's kind of like that thing where you make this vow when you're a new parent. Well, I'm never going to say the things that my parents said. And in the middle <laughs> yes, of you weakness, do. you're like, wait till your father gets home. I mean, you just say all the things that you said you'd never say. And it's it just because it's automatic. It's what you know, and it comes out in your behavior. And for sexual abuse victims, a lot of times it comes out in kind of a disconnection from other human beings. Mm. So you live this aloof life. You may have a good facade of it looking like you're super life of the party or whatever, but um, but it causes you to isolate your heart. And sadly, really, the only way to have that wound healed, we're injured in terrible community, but we're made whole with good community. And that's making mm-hmm. that step to say, I'm going to at least start to talk about it. Now, for people who are afraid to talk about it, I give them the advice to write it down and to give themselves permission to write every single thing. And then if they're still afraid to tell the story, at least it's out of their heart onto the page. But then to pray that God would send them someone, maybe another guy, a pastor, friend, whatever, um, their wife, uh, whatever, whoever it might be, that is a safe person. And if they're still afraid to say it, they can just hand the paper over and say, this is my story. Hmm. And that sexual abuse and the trauma of it and the shame and all of that, it thrives to kill you in the darkness. Mm. And the more you can let it out in the light, the better. And so for men who struggle with this, I would say to them, this is the, actually one of the greatest gifts you can give your loved ones as a healed heart. If you want to be an amazing father, an amazing husband, an amazing worker, you, if you have a healed heart, you're going to do a lot better rather than stuffing it down. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, someone else asked, what are the warning signs of sexual abuse? And then they, they also asked, why have we swept, swept it under the rug? I think maybe we talked about that. Um, but what are some of the warning signs? Well, in children in particular, it's a, a radical change in behavior. Um, there can be physical evidence of that, um, you know, like blood. Uh, but mainly it's this radical change in behaviors and, and the who they were before is no longer who they are now. Um, they can be easily startled. They can um, choose, ask not to go to a particular place. It can be hmm. like an A student and suddenly be flunking out. Um, and that's where having a good relationship with your child and an open-ended communication with them is really helpful. But it's also important to know that a lot of 
people who have been victimized, it takes them a really long time to share. And we really need to stop shaming people for taking decades to share. Mm. It's absolutely mm-hmm. normal for someone, especially a child, to wait decades before they share. When they have it happen to them as a child, they have no language to process it. They don't have the maturity. They don't have the... Um, ability to even understand the trauma. They've just been traumatized. They wouldn't be able to articulate it. And so I I remember someone said to me, well, I never knew that happened to you. Why didn't you tell me earlier? And I'm like, wow, you know, let's talk about trauma. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I shared early. I started young. I shared the moment it happened. Well, within a few weeks of it happening, I told my babysitter, she chose to push me back out and to be continually re-victimized. So she was unsafe and the wrong person to tell. Oh, yeah. So then I clammed up for a decade. When I became a Christian, I told my uh, one of my parents um, at that point and had to keep telling the story because they didn't believe me. And so I did all of the right things in terms of detailing what happened. But even then, it didn't mean that I was received. Right, which is why going back to what we said earlier, believing and receiving that story and and, and being a safe person is really important. Right. It's so critical. Yeah. Okay. I think I, I understand the heart behind this question. The question is anything beyond never uh, meeting with a person of the opposite sex. So you have that Billy Graham rule, right, that sometimes Mike Pence gets a little bit uh, – he takes slack for right now. Um but he has that for a reason, right? To to protect himself in some ways. Although that's a really interesting kind of dicey thing. But is there anything besides that? Because that, that I think is sometimes the policy that pastors like try to live by in order to, you know, keep themselves out of hot water here. Um, but anything besides that? Well, first of all, in a world of same-sex attraction, I don't think the Billy Graham rule Doesn't works anymore. Work. Oh my gosh, Mary! I've never thought of that, but you are right. Oh my goodness! I mean, then you can't be with any human ever. So. Oh, so which I, what I like about that is because I've had this kind of problem with that rule for a long time. But is what does that mean? Like we we have to we actually have to have a more mature view of our own sexuality <laughs> than that than just avoidance. I heard a wow. speaker, um, I think her name's Katie Cole, and she was talking about that particular rule. And she said that the new rule that um, she likes is to bring an extra. And so then mm. it's never one-on-one, it's two-on-one. And I think that's probably a really safe... Then it's not like, okay, well, evil women are going to entice men or you know, men are going to entice women. It's just right. like, well, it's a group of three people. So you have someone else to collaborate, whether it's three guys, three girls, or two girls and a guy, two guys and a girl. That is kind of a, a modern way of kind of getting around that um, in terms of accusations and, and whatnot. I mean, it's, I mean, we can all, any one of us can be accused of anything. And that's where I think really good, um, robust accountability comes in. And I'm not talking about like mechanical ac- accountability, like, you know, some people yeah. like, did you look at porn today and check yes, check no. Um, it's more like relational accountability. Like I have a prayer team of about 80 people and they are my accountability. Of course, my husband is and my closest friends in my circle. But though, if you have people in your life who know you well, and if you have dared to let yourself be known, those things are less likely to happen. It's the isolated person um, it's the pastor on the pedestal who has no friends because he doesn't feel like he can, because then right. people will know he's fallible. 
so he's the dangerous. one or she's the one who is in that place, you know, at the top of the ministry pyramid that is in great danger of, uh, of temptation. Absolutely. I'm so convinced many of these pastors that we see falling, especially in mega churches, but even other places, it's because nobody knows them. They have yeah. nobody that they can share their, their real heart with. And that is a travesty. Um, Okay, so here's so there were a couple of questions that I think go together, and um, yeah, so somebody asked, "How do you deal with sexual predators who come to your church after getting out of jail?" So that's kind of an interesting question. It's a good question, and it's an important one. I had this on the lunch team actually. Um, someone asked this question, and so my response was: um, first of all, they have paid for their crime. And of course, the church wants to err on the side of belief and redemption. But if the person was um, incriminated for a pedophilic offense, the statistics are terrible for that. Yeah. There will be reoffense. And so in that case, what I would say is the beauty of some of our churches today is that they have online campuses. And so a church can still love someone who has that tendency by having them attend the online campus or watch messages online and then meet with someone um, of the same sex and same age uh, or yeah. opposite, I don't know, you know, however, it's Cre- maybe people, you can right? create community in other ways. Yes, you can create community for that church in other ways, but I would not personally, this is my personal opinion, and it can be debated, of course, but I personally would not allow someone who has been convicted of a pedophilic crime to be anywhere at all at my church because it's unfair to them. It's like saying, come into this bar, you alcoholic, and we're going to be like throwing alcohol at each other and having a great old time, and um, we're going to actually put it in your face And actually, if that pedophile um, person has a predilection toward children and has repented, then they won't want to be anywhere near a church because church usually has children in it. Yeah. So that's that's how I would handle it. Hmm, Interesting. Okay. And then somebody else asked, how how can someone maybe who's gone through that process um, as a as a, I guess, predator and offender, com- offer a complete and potentially redemptive apology. Like, is there a way to to do that? Because the reality is, this isn't just. I mean, there are victims, but there's also the the other people, and they, I suspect, they wrestle as well. Right. Um, yeah. So this is a really harsh crime. It is. <laughs> I mean, you know what I love that you say. Um, over and over you say, hey, the, the effects, I think you said it here, the effects last for a really long time, right? Like forever, yeah. for the rest of your life. And so, so the perpetrator can like perpetrate for 15 minutes, yes. but it will last with me for the rest of my life. Right. And so it's not just a matter of a simple apology. And I get that. I totally get that. Um, but I would love to know like if there's a, how can somebody give an off, give a, give a really genuine apology? What does that need to include? I would say that, um, First of all, a lot of people who are predatory in nature are narcissistic in nature. Mm. And so they are very well adept at words. And Mm. so it would be really hard for a victim of assault to believe the words of a predator. And you may have, this may be part of your, you may feel the need to apologize 
specifically and repent and maybe put it up on a blog or send a letter or however you feel necessary to do that. But you have to do that with zero expectation that there will ever be reconciliation. And you have to understand that there is penalties for our sins and our crimes. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, the penalty is that you don't ever, you don't have the right to be around that person ever again. And so for you to approach them might be more traumatizing for them. And if you really love them, you wouldn't want to traumatize them again. If you're truly repentant, the last thing you'd want to do is to traumatize them again. Now you could confess this to other people and, and walk through that. Um, of course there's redemption. I, I believe in that wholeheartedly because I'm a Christ follower. Um, you know, there's a thief on the cross that gets to see Jesus in paradise and he was naughty. He was a thief. So I totally get that, but you have to also understand the compassionate nature of how we must deal with people who have been deeply traumatized by what you've done. Yeah. I think that's a good balance. You talk about a misunderstanding of forgiveness in the book, right? Like, which I just thought was so good. Um, I could tell you other stories, but we sometimes think it has to be immediate and it has to be like, we need to now have this restored relationship. And that's not true. You can forgive somebody or you can not, but you can decide that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let that go, but you can't, you don't necessarily have to have a relationship with them later. Right. Right. And I misunderstood that. I thought, you know, when I was a first a Christian, I thought it meant that I had to be in relationship with people that perpetrated against me and that that would be like the highlight of the gospel, you know, right. <laughs> like showing how great God was. But it only made things really bad for me and uh, made my trauma recovery longer. So wow. um, it's important that, yeah, that it's okay to have boundaries. And I, my heart is, of course, I believe in forgiveness. And of course, it's important for all of us to walk that journey in our own way. But I just don't want a leader to sit a victim down and say, you must forgive. And on my timetable, that's very prideful to say, right. because first of all, none of us understand the other person fully and none of us can prescribe a forgiveness journey. And all of us who have been on a forgiveness journey know that it's this weird onion of layers that. You may have forgiven on February 5th. You made this declaration. I have chosen to forgive this person for hurting me on February 5th. But then on March 12th, some trigger happens and you're like, oh, I thought I forgave. Right. Maybe I didn't because I have this emotion. No, no, I did choose to forgive, but now I've got another thing I have to forgive because I remembered this. And it's just a continual. So to say it's like some sort of one-time event Yes, you can make that first decision, but that one-time event is like a catalyst of 50 other forgivenesses, and people don't get to prescribe that. That's the Holy Spirit's mm. job to convict you and to mm. lead you down that path. What would the church be like if we just let the Holy Spirit do his job and we did the rest? <laughs> that would be amazing. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> What would my life look like if I 100% followed the Holy no, Spirit? No doubt. So but I think that gets back to the whole thing of what we think the spiritual maturity actually is, you know? And I think that's wisdom. Like, I think we, I think back on, we talked about discipleship earlier. I think back on, you know, those kind of like discipleship th- uh, relationships I had where you're like, okay, here's the seven verses you need to memorize. And <laughs> right. here's, you know, you got to read this and do this method, the ACTS. And, uh, right. I got a lot of knowledge but not very much wisdom. But now that I'm older and wiser, um, I think it's applied scripture that 
that causes wisdom and acted upon scripture mm. that causes wisdom. I remember meeting my friends in Ghana and they didn't have all of the Christian stations that we had. They didn't have all the teaching that we had. They didn't have all the books that we had, but boy, were they much more um, stronger in their relationship with God because they simply obeyed what they knew. And I think we would be a lot better off if we would just obey what we know. Yeah. Right. And how, how accountable are we that we know so much and we don't obey, we obey so little. <laughs> it's like Man. worthless, right? Why are you even believing that if you're not <sighs> going to obey it? Okay. So speaking of that, uh, <laughs> there was this great question and I'm not going to read it word for word, but about, um, they, they talked about church styles of government, but I'm even thinking of, of ways of, of, um, theologies that put, uh, certain people, um, as sort of second class citizens in the kingdom of God. And that can be kind of a problem and lead lead to enabling abusers. Um, and so without calling out specific theologies personally, but you feel free if you want. Because um, this was kind of an issue at the SBC conference, right? You went to the to the conference. So talk to us about that. And I just want to talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the issue that came up was um, egalitarian versus complementarian. And um, the argument is made that if you're complementarian, then those kinds of structures that are more um, patriarchal can contribute to a system of abuse. And I think that's that can be true. Um, but I think that there can be an egalitarian structure that also has abuse in it. So, uh, and I'm not going to say which side I'm on, but... Um, that's a wise, just, that's wise. Because <laughs> I don't want to get crucified from either side. Um, actually, well, I kind of walk down the middle of it, which is pretty funny and weird. But um, I, I, it's really more about how are we going to follow Christ and look at how he loved people when he walked this earth. He gave us an example, Peter said, that we should follow in his steps. And so therefore, what did? how did Jesus treat people who were marginalized? Hmm. How did he treat women who were second-class citizens in that particular context? How did he treat a Samaritan, um, a Samaritan woman who had a story? Right. Um, he treated her well, in fact, the longest theological discussion in the New Testament between Jesus and another human being is with the woman at the well. So we have to look at Jesus. I think we can kind of get caught up in our pet theologies and our structures and try to say, well, ours is better and yours is worse. But really, the question has to go back to how would Jesus lead in this particular situation that I am in right now? Yeah, that is super wise. So it's not necessarily the theology. It's it's abuse can happen anywhere, and so, uh, but let's be wise about how we deal with uh, with others, um, or with those situations. I love that. Okay, so there's a lot more that we could talk about, but I want to make sure that our friends know how to get the book. So it's called We Too. Where can they find it? They can find it anywhere books are sold. There's a website called we2.org. And if someone is a a sexual abuse survivor and wants 21 letters of how I've kind of come through and not healed completely, but, you know, on the healing journey, they can go to we2.org forward slash 21 days and that's free. Um, There's also we2.org forward slash resources. And um, there's hundreds of vetted resources there for people, for churches, for individuals and all of that. So that's all I can say about all of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, guys, there are links to all of those things that Mary just mentioned at halfwaytherepodcast.com as well. So 
Uh, if you are interested in get finding out more or connecting with Mary, you can do that from there. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate you so much. And uh, guys, again, we we too.org. Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs>